0: The fuck up! It is a side quest episode here on the main quest podcast. There aren't many of these type of episodes, so what these side quest episodes are reserved for are for me to talk about whatever game I want to talk about that has come after my like main quest cutoff period of 2011, or maybe some other adjacent video game topics like uh, music of various games or uh, top ten hunky men of video games, the best cod pieces in video games, best Madden game. Actually, that last that last one is a joke because every Madden game is the same. So uh, keep an eye out for the hunkiest man episode. I remember stating a long time ago that I wanted to keep these side quest episodes a little shorter than my main ones. And uh, holy fuck, was that Final Fantasy remake episode long? Uh, So sorry about that one. Uh, But I have very complicated feelings about that game. Actually, I I completely forgot about that game until I just mentioned it now. So, The Last of Us Part 2. I have been avoiding recording this episode because I kind of don't want to talk about this game. I mean, I do. I I do want to talk about it, but I know that I will get really, 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 really into it. And so then we're going to have, you know, another hour and a half, two hour episode of me just ranting. Mainly I'm going to try my best uh, to sidestep calling out all the detestable shit that surrounded this game when it was released because I will not let that kind of toxic shit that is somehow thriving in our community even get to me and I will not let it have a voice on my show. With that said, this is a newish game It's only three months old at this point, and there are many people that haven't played it yet. So, I will let you know there will be spoilers. If you have somehow made it this far into the year after the game's released and haven't heard any of the spoilers, holy shit, I'm going to buy you a drink at some point. I think I mentioned on a previous episode, it might have actually been the Final Fantasy VII Remake episode, that I'm really good at avoiding spoilers. And so the day that this game dropped and I played it, I was better for it. I went into it completely blind, and I think you should do the same. And of course, if you haven't played the first game, I cannot talk about The Last of Us Part 2 without talking about the ending of the first game. So, spoilers for that 6 or 7 year old game. I forget how old it is. Uh, Anyway, so what I'm going to do up front, I'm going to do something a little bit different for those who want to know how I feel about the game, my overall thoughts. I'm going to distill my final thoughts right here at the top of the episode and try to keep it as ambiguous as possible uh, so I will not spoil the game for you. I would give The Last of Us Part Two a light recommend. It is one of the best-looking games of the console generation, bar none. The music is painfully good, And the sound design is jaw-dropping. The game is a little long, and it gets really bogged down by some unnecessary characters. But it's all in favor of the main protagonists, or antagonists, story arcs. I would go full-on recommend if the game hadn't been released in the middle of a pandemic or a worldwide protest against police brutality. The Last of Us Part 2 is a victim of its timing and is particularly hard to sit through if you're sensitive. With that said, spoilers from here on out. Total, absolute, complete spoilers. I am going to dissect this motherfucker the best I can. So, let's talk about The Last of Us Part 2. Last of Us Part 2 is an action-adventure game developed by Naughty Dog and published by Sony Interactive Entertainment. It is the long-awaited sequel to easily one of the best stories told in a video game, The Last of Us. Part 2 is once again directed by Neil Druckmann, who alongside Haley Gross also wrote the story, and Gustavo Santelaya returns to the project once again to score the game. I would be foolish To not go as far as mentioning the performances from Troy Baker, uh, Laura Bailey, and Ashley Johnson. Without Troy and Ashley reprising their roles as Joel and Ellie respectively, and, and then you add the phenomenal talent Laura adds to the cast playing Abby, this game wouldn't be half of what it is. On top of that, you even have the supporting cast who goes just as hard in the paint as our main three actors. We have Jeffrey Pierce playing Tommy, Shannon Woodward who plays Dina, uh, Stephen A. Chang, Ashley Birch, Victoria Grace, Ian Alexander, and fucking Jeffrey Wright as Isaac. I, I'll, get, I'll get more into the actors later, but this is, this is just one of those games that has way too many characters to actually really talk about. The Last of Us Part Two was released on June 19th, 2020, for the PlayStation 4. This is going to be a story heavy podcast. A lot of games I can just kind of breeze through the story very quickly, but I think a chunk of this podcast is going to be dedicated to the story. And I'm, I'm going to try my best to really dive deep into what this story is, what it's about, and analyze its characters and their motivations uh, as well as I can and kind of give you my take on what I think Naughty Dog is uh, trying to convey in this game. So, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we can't talk about Part 2 without talking a little bit about Part 1. Now, I loved The Last of Us a lot. Do I think it deserves all the praise it gets? Uh, Kind of? When Part 2 was on the cusp of release... My brother asked me, should I play part one before getting part two? I said, yes. Yes, of course. Mainly because you have to know what the characters have endured, what has changed them, and how their actions have affected the world around them. The character development, the writing, and the stellar voice acting is what set The Last of Us apart from many of the games back in 2013. To the extent that many other games sort of haven't really touched it since the gameplay isn't great it's actually pretty slow it's a little clunky and kind of awful if you're trying to just blast your way through the game going aggro i'd almost say the last of us isn't really a fun game to play and then you have the story which in of itself is a typical zombie apocalypse story it's nothing we really haven't seen before We have the government shutting everything down and setting up camps and killing anyone who comes in their way. Meanwhile, there's a resistance group called the Fireflies who secretly carries out missions to keep people alive all the while trying to find a cure to the Cordyceps fungus. The fungus that has led the world's population to turn into grotesque walking monsters. It's pretty typical. It's a typical story. But I told my brother, if you can get past the sophomoric linear gameplay and thin story you will walk away invested in those characters in their motivations and their emotions which is kind of funny because i don't think he's beat it yet so what the fuck do i know with that said joel is a piece of shit he's for lack of a better term a bad person yeah he's the main protagonist of the first game As if that's enough justification for all the admiration he gets from the community. But if you play the first game and pay attention, before he meets Ellie, he is a hardened, merciless, selfish, borderline criminal. Joel has plenty of skeletons in his closet, and he only shoves more of them in up until the credits roll. But as the player, we are made to sympathize with Joel's decision at the end of the game. We are to understand that everything he does is for Ellie. And so we are in our own pandemic right now, like it's real. As of this recording, we are living in a real world pandemic. And now let's magnify our pandemic relative to the last of us. Let's say there is an absolute cure. It's within reach, but it is only attainable Through the life of one single girl. Who is willing to sacrifice herself for the betterment of the world. It's so close. The cure is right there. The doctors are ready to synthesize it. But she will lose her life. All of a sudden something happens. Some selfish, bitter, love-stricken man. Who has been alone for 20 years. Massacres all the doctors. All the security. Just so that girl won't die. Just so he can have someone to call his daughter. Now you hear that, and how angry would you be? Not only is your own family in peril, your own life in peril now, but the whole world is doomed. The whole planet is doomed. What we're struggling through right now with COVID is nothing compared To what's happening in the world of The Last of Us. And we can't even handle our own pandemic correctly. But that's the dichotomy of Joel. As the player, we come to forgive what he's done in the past. And forget what we are currently doing as the game unfolds before us to get Ellie to Salt Lake City. His relationship with Ellie does mirror that of his and his deceased daughter Sarah. Who we see very early on in the game. And you begin to see him change as someone who will do anything to stay alive. To someone who will do anything to protect their daughter. And he does. So much so, he takes away the one thing that would outright cure the fungus that plagues humanity. And so the ending to The Last of Us isn't ambiguous. Joel not only dooms humanity, but on a personal level, lies to Ellie that the Fireflies have found another way to cure the infection. All in the name of pursuing what he feels may lead to a normal life. He dooms humanity and lies to the only person he loves. The one person who is willing to lay down their life for others. And so part two literally picks up after the events of one. We even get a recap of the last few hours. Joel and Ellie are living in a walled-off community in Jackson, Wyoming and Joel is confessing to his brother Tommy about the events that occurred in Salt Lake City. Upon flashbacks, we're reminded that at the end of part one, Ellie doesn't quite take Joel at his word, and this causes a rift between the two, further making Joel feel guilty for his decision to protect the only person he loved, only to have lost it through his actions anyway. We then fast forward four years, and now this is where I might get caught up, because there's like a a lot of like Tarantino-ing through this game there there are multiple flashbacks and a lot of fast forwarding we're jumping around timelines and different timelines that run parallel to each other all of which culminate in the overall story of Ellie and Abby it's not my favorite way of telling a story nor is it going to be my favorite way of conveying the story so I'm gonna do my best here you have to bear with me I'm probably gonna fuck up some stuff so four years after Joel's confession to Tommy, we catch up with Ellie and two new characters, Jesse and Dina, who were formally dating at one point, but have recently broke up. Through some dialogue, we find out that Ellie and Dina recently shared a kiss during a block party or town get-together town hall meeting. It was basically a party that the town was throwing. And while dancing, Ellie and Dina shared a kiss and a bigoted Local bar owner sees this and decides to start shouting homophobic slurs at the girls until Joel decides to confront him and the two have a brawl. For the most part, the people of Jackson are very supportive of Ellie, as she's not timid and openly expresses her sexuality. And now that's something that Naughty Dog has shown us in the first game. Ellie is quite fucking sassy. Not like queer sassy, like she's, she's just a hard-ass bitch. But also, it's like in an enduring way. She's fucking lovable, goddammit. That's my point. And so this is when we meet Abby and her friend Owen. They are part of a larger group called the Washington Liberation Front, or WLF for short. And right off the bat, I was like, there's something off about these people. These must be like the villains of the game. Something about their dialogue and the cadence in their voices and, and the way they moved something was just off. Something was just off about them. You can tell Abby and Owen are romantic or have been romantic in the past. There's some sort of tension between the two, and they definitely have a history. It's made clear that they're looking for someone in Jackson, but it isn't made obvious who they're looking for. It's at this point, we kind of go back and forth between playing as Abby and playing as Ellie. Now, Ellie and Dina are patrolling the area around Jackson, ultimately having to find shelter in an old library just full of weed. The entire basement is hot. And it gets a little hot between Ellie and Dina, if you catch my drift. (laughs) So anyway, meanwhile, Abby and Owen are on their own mission to find this person and get split up as they're attacked by infected Abby gets outnumbered and is saved by Joel and Tommy while they're out on their patrol. Needing shelter, Abby leads them back to a house where the rest of the WLF are holed up. And this is where we find out that Joel is the one that they've been looking for. Abby promptly blasts Joel in the knees with a shotgun, incapacitating him, while the others knock Tommy unconscious. Abby starts interrogating Joel, while Joel keeps asking just who the hell she is, what the fuck is exactly going on, they have a little bit of back and forth, and now, I kind of love this part, only because I'm right, (laughs) it wasn't until my second playthrough that I even caught this line, because during my first playthrough I was just in genuine shock. So here it is straight from the fucking big dumb horse himself, Joel says to Abby, just say whatever speech you have rehearsed and get this over with. Cementing that yet again, through storytelling, that Joel has always known that at some point anybody, anyone, could comfort him for all the shitty things that he's done in the past. Joel has always known that he's had unsurmountable debts to pay. And here, he pays for it. As Abby grabs a golf club and shockingly, horrifyingly, bashes Joel's skull in. Eventually, Ellie finds the house where the WLF half Joel and tries to stop the attack, but is attacked herself and held down as she pleads in agony for Joel to stand up. And then looking back to her, is a severely, almost unrecognizable Joel. Just barely breathing, staring at her as Abby finishes her work with one last swing of the club. And, you know, going into this game completely blind, I was shocked. Of course I was shocked. And it's not because I was like, how could you do this to our our beloved hunky boy, Joel? But because the scene is just absolutely brutal even for me but then also you add the empathy that I felt for Ellie you know her face says it all in this scene and Ashley Johnson is acting her fucking ass off you know where is Ellie's closure with Joel what's gonna happen with Tommy are they going to kill Ellie and what about the rest of Jackson I didn't really care that Joel died I mean I did But he kind of deserved it. Joel knew that he deserved to die. And we know it because of what he said to Abby in that moment. He could have said anything to her. But he knows there are countless reasons for why anyone would want him dead. He is merely receiving Abby's retribution, something that we do not know of yet. A retribution that has been dished out by us, the player, countless of times in the first game. like part one, Naughty Dog isn't doing anything revolutionary with the story here. For the most part, it's a simple revenge plot. The first game mostly focuses on Joel's story arc. His story is done. I don't think there's really anything you can do with Joel's story that would make it interesting in the second part. So now our main character is Ellie. Her arc basically begins towards the end of the first game, and in order to get Invested, engaged, and motivated Naughty Dog makes us feel Ellie's emotions and her strong hatred for Abby and the WLF. And so now our story is finally taking off. Tommy leaves to find the WLF headquarters in Seattle, and Ellie and Dina follow a few days later. We spend a lot of time listening to dialogue between the two while searching the ruins of the nearby towns while riding on horseback. Here we see Dina and Ellie's bond strengthening between the two of them. And for the most part, it is very, like, kind of high schoolish. They're just so flirty with each other that it's kind of cringy, but, like, really cute in a weird way. It's super endearing. And this is also, uh, if you listen to my side quest music show, uh, where Ellie plays that cover of Take On Me. Eventually, Ellie and Dina reach an abandoned theater, and Ellie is forced to tell Dina that she's immune to the cordyceps infection, while Dina drops the bomb that she's pregnant with Jesse's child. Ellie retreats to the back of the theater for some downtime, and this is when we get our first flashback. Now, there's many, 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 many moments in this game where I'll probably say that this is the best part of the game, but, man, after playing this through for a second time... This has got to be the best moment in gaming, period. At some point, after settling in Jackson, Joel takes Ellie out on a walk, promising a surprise for her birthday. In a very clever way, we find out that finally Joel has taught Ellie to swim. And eventually they come across an old museum, and through propaganda and tagging, we begin to see the fallout from the fireflies failing to create a cure for the infection. Joel knows that Ellie has a strong attraction for dinosaurs and space travel, and so for her birthday, he takes her to exhibits that pertain to both of her interests. Ellie and Joel both climb into a space shuttle that's on display, and Joel hands her a cassette tape player that has some dialogue from a space shuttle launch. The cinematography, the dialogue between the two characters, the music, it all comes together to show just how close Joel and Ellie have become, and for a moment, we see Ellie at her most contentment. Of course this doesn't last, because we end the flashback with Ellie asking about the disbanded fireflies, showing that she still sees through Joel's cracked story. Now we jump back to the present, and Ellie decides she's going to leave Dina at the theater and hunt down the WLF by herself. We then quickly flashback once again to Tommy teaching Ellie how to use a sniper rifle, even though that doesn't really come into play after this. And then later, her and Joel rummage through a nearby music shop to find guitar strings for her guitar that Joel has been teaching her how to play. Having to first cut through a hotel with infected along their way, Ellie and Joel find a deceased couple who left Jackson some time ago to go look for any remaining Firefly members or a possible cure. Ellie, still having some major doubts about what happened in Salt Lake City, confronts Joel again. Even though Joel confirms his story, you can tell that their relationship is struggling and that the two are drifting apart. Back in the present, Ellie stumbles upon a cult named the Seraphites. They are a self-mutilating religious group that are also currently engaged in a war with the WLF over Seattle. Now, there's... Tons of deep backstory of who the Seraphites are and how they came to power through various journal entries and other pickups. But to save time, all you really need to know is that their belief is incredibly strong and that they absolutely hate the WLF and the WLF hate them. Whereas the WLF are nicknamed the Wolf, the WLF themselves refer to the Seraphites as Scars which refers to the scarification ritual performed within their group. Ellie reaches a hospital where she believes one of the main WOLF members, Nora, is hanging out. Ellie confronts Nora, who runs and ultimately has to escape into a part of the hospital that's overrun by cordyceps. Not knowing Ellie is immune to the cordyceps, Nora begs her not to chase her into the infected area of the hospital, but Ellie gives chase anyway. Eventually, the infectious spores begin to take a large toll on Nora's immune system and she falls to the ground cowering. This is when Ellie begins to torture Nora and tries to get any info on Abby's whereabouts. This scene in particular is devastating. It's the most brutal we've ever seen Ellie and parallels exactly what Abby did to Joel earlier in the game. Ellie is now a monster. The game is filled with numerous button prompts, which I'll touch on later. This entire scene, the camera focuses on a blood-soaked Ellie, breathing heavily, raising a pipe, drenched in a deep red glow, with the music coming to a dramatic swell when the game prompts you to hit square. I put the controller down. To me, this is not what I wanted Ellie to go through and do. Nora was already dead upon entering the infected area of the hospital. As the player, I did not want to go through with Ellie's interrogation. I waited several minutes just staring at Ellie's face just to see if anything would happen if I didn't go through with the button prompts. Unfortunately... That's not a part of the story Naughty Dog wants to tell. Ellie has to become a monster. We go back two years, and Ellie is roaming the hospital she was meant to die at in Salt Lake City. She finds a bunch of evidence that contradicts Joel's story, and confronts him one last time and states that if he lies to her once more, she will leave Jackson forever. But. If he finally admits the truth, she will come back to Jackson with him. He finally tells her what really happened, that he stopped the Fireflies from studying her and producing a cure, to instead save her life. This absolutely shatters Ellie. Even though she does go back to Jackson with Joel, their relationship is completely broken. In the present, Ellie finds out that Abby may be hiding out in a nearby aquarium and sets out to find her. Along the way, she eventually runs into Jesse, who turns out has been following her and Dina ever since they left Jackson. The two reach the aquarium, and Ellie finds two WLF members, Owen and Mel. Ellie holds up a map and tells them to show her where Abby is on the map, and if they don't point out the same spot, Ellie threatens to kill them both. This entire scene mirrors the scene from the first game where Joel is interrogating David's men. Owen tries to attack Ellie and in the scuffle, Ellie ends up killing them both. As Owen lays dying, he tells Ellie that Mel is pregnant, which Ellie confirms herself only to realize the weight of her actions. Tommy and Jesse catch up with Ellie and take her back to the theater, but Ellie accidentally drops her map and leaves it behind. At the theater, Ellie and Jesse hear a gunshot and run up to the front of the building when Jesse is immediately shot in the head with the killer being revealed as Abby. She holds Tommy at gunpoint, completely pissed that Ellie has killed her friends. Frustrated, she holds the gun to Ellie and tells her that she let her live and that Ellie wasted it. We then flash back four years and we find out why Abby was after Joel in the first place. Her father was the lead researcher at the hospital in Salt Lake City that was to study Ellie. He was the one in the first game that convinced the Firefly leader Marlene to even allow them to dissect Ellie despite Marlene telling Ellie's mother that she would keep her safe. After Joel killed Abby's father to protect Ellie, Abby found her father's body and lost her only family member with this entire scene haunting her for the rest of her life. Soon after, the Fireflies disbanded, causing Abby to lose any semblance of home until she found a second home with the WLF. reveals the other side of the coin. Naughty Dog wants to hit home the theme of revenge, specifically revenge cycles. Joel killed Abby's father, hurting Abby. Abby killed Joel, hurting Ellie. Ellie killed Owen and Mel, hurting Abby again. And now Abby killed Jesse and is on the cusp of killing Tommy and Ellie. So if Abby goes through with that, who does she hurt? After this flashback, we live through the same three days in Seattle, just as we did with Ellie and her crew, except this time we play as Abby and see everything from her perspective, leading all the way up to the confrontation in the theater. We see the main WLF hideout, which is a reinforced football stadium, and we meet a shit ton of new characters who honestly aren't all too important. We learn that Abby is a high-ranking WLF member and is exceedingly looked up to even though she often disagrees with their leader, Isaac. They also begin to feel the impact of Ellie's revenge quest as corpses begin to pile up and be brought into the WLF to investigate, even though they don't know quite yet who has it out for them. Abby learns that Owen has left the WLF and has allegedly shot one of their own leading Isaac to believe that Owen has defected to the Seraphites. Abby sets out to find Owen, and this is when we get a series of flashbacks fleshing out the love story between those two and Owen's own relationship with Mel. Here we learn that Owen found an abandoned aquarium and made it his home. He repurposes a a small yacht and tells Abby that he's going to use it to find a small group of fireflies that are hiding out in Santa Barbara, leaving the WLF and rejoining the fireflies. He asks Abby to come join him, but she's skeptical because of his relationship with Mel and all of the mixed feelings and and jealousy she has because of this. We jump back to the present day, and Abby is captured by the Seraphites. She is strung up and hung in the woods and is getting ready to be executed when they bring in another prisoner, a former Seraphite, Yara. The crew is told to clip Yara's wings, and so they hold her down and proceed to break her arms with a hammer. But before they can break the other arm, She's rescued by her bow-wheeling brother, Lev. Both of them help Abby and kill the surrounding Seraphites and narrowly escape through the woods. The next day, Abby takes Yara and Lev to the aquarium so that Mel can save Yara by amputating her broken arm. The tension is really high considering the WLF and the Seraphites have been, they've got a long tortured history. But Mel eventually agrees to help, but needs supplies for the surgery to be successful. While traveling, we learn why Lev and Yara were excommunicated from the cult. Lev, who was born Lily, wanted to be a soldier but was being forced to marry another member of the group. So Lev ended up shaving his head, which is a ritual only reserved for the males in the Seraphites. Lev's mother, devout to the cult, disowned Lev for his actions, but Yara refused to cast her brother aside and so she was also to be executed alongside him. Abby and Lev eventually go to be close friends, and they retrieve their supplies from the hospital when Abby is found by the WLF members and arrested for associating with the Seraphites. She's later freed by Nora, shortly before her own death at the hands of Ellie. When they get back to the aquarium, Yara's surgery is successful, but the next day Lev leaves with the boat to go find his mother at the Seraphites' hideout. Abby and Yara chase after him and eventually come across Tommy, who has been sniping down WLF members from a tower. Abby eventually reaches Tommy and tosses him into the ocean, and she and Yara grab a boat and head to the island where the Seraphites are hiding out. They find out that the WLF are going to launch a full-scale attack on the island and must quickly fight through the area to find Lev and his mother. We then learn that Lev tried to reason with his mother, which then turned into an argument before he ultimately ends up killing her. As the group tries to escape the island, Yara is suddenly shot and killed by Isaac, who is backed by other WLF troops. Isaac is about to kill Abby and Lev when nearby Seraphites attack and kill him first. Abby and Lev take advantage of this distraction and eventually escape back to the aquarium where Abby finds Owen and Mel's body. She finds the map that Ellie accidentally left behind, And we finally come back around to the theater. (sighs) After a short scuffle, Abby shoots Tommy in the head and chases Ellie into the back of the theater. We have a very tense showdown between the two, where Abby eventually gains the upper hand on Ellie. Dina suddenly appears to try and save Ellie, but Abby overpowers her and prepares to kill her while Ellie pleads with her not to because she's pregnant. Lev shows up and sees what's happening, and Abby looks to him and ultimately second-guesses herself, ultimately breaking the cycle of revenge, a major, major turning point in her story. Abby already let Ellie go once before, and because of it, lost her lover and several of her friends. Abby shouldn't even care if Dina is pregnant, because after all, Ellie just killed a very visibly pregnant Mel just moments before. I didn't expect Abby to show any mercy at this point, but she realizes that the more this goes on, the more she will lose. Violence begets violence, and through her friendship with Lev, she holds on to her humanity and walks away from Ellie, telling her that... She never wants to see her again. We then fast forward to at least nine months, probably longer, to Ellie, Dina, and their child living on a farm as a family. We find out that Ellie suffers from horrible PTSD from experiencing the trauma of Joel's death. This is a memory she relives over and over again, just like Abby who found her father's corpse in the hospital. This is made worse when Tommy stops to visit And explains that he survived the shot from Abby, but it has severely affected his brain and he lost vision in one of his eyes. He tells Ellie that Abby is hiding out in Santa Barbara and asks her to come with him to help him finally avenge Joel's death. Initially, Ellie refuses as she is content with her quiet life on the farm, but Tommy continues to insist that she tags along. After a few days of mulling it over, And remembering how Joel stood up for her after the kiss between her and Dina, Ellie fucking puts on Joel's jacket and starts packing to go find Abby to kill her. Dina pleads Ellie not to go, as she cannot constantly live having to worry about her. She ultimately tells Ellie that if she leaves to go exact her revenge, she will take their son and leave Ellie forever. Ellie decides to leave anyway leaving a very emotionally distraught Dina behind. And it's at this point we are about 35 to maybe 40 hours in. The Last of Us Part Two has left us emotionally drained. The entire farmhouse scene finally gives us just a little bit of relief until fucking Tommy shows up, and then again, we are left with a feeling of dread. How could Ellie possibly still want to get revenge after all this time? We see that Ellie cannot do what Abby did. Give up her revenge in order to keep her loved ones. During my first playthrough, I literally shouted at the TV, Why? Why? Just leave it! Just leave it! It's done! And I think that's the exact reaction Naughty Dog wants someone to have. They want you to no longer empathize with Ellie's journey. We've been so emotionally invested in her struggle, and we experienced all of the conflicts Abby had to overcome to break her cycle, and Ellie refuses to let Joel down. She still feels like she needs to kill Abby. It's so fucking exhausting. It is so exhausting. Anyway, the next shot is kind of clever to me because it's a tracking shot of someone wearing a pair of Converse sneakers which is the shoe preferred by Ellie. But as the camera pans up, we see it's actually Lev who's following behind Abby in Santa Barbara, which draws the perfect parallel of Joel and Ellie in the first game. So they're in Santa Barbara to track down the fireflies that Owen heard about. They find the hideout empty, but are able to contact the group through a radio that they find in the basement. And in another brief moment of optimism, Things quickly go south when Abby and Lev leave the house and are ambushed by a local group of slave laborers called the Rattlers. Ellie eventually comes across the base where the Rattlers are set up and frees a bunch of the slaves who tell her that Abby and Lev tried to escape earlier, but were once again caught and taken to the pillars just outside on the beach. As a weakened Ellie arrives at the beach, she finds a completely unrecognizable Abby Strung up on a pillar left to die, Abby recognizes Ellie as she is cut down and then runs to go cut down Lev after she is released. Believing that Ellie was also trying to escape the Rattlers, Abby leads Ellie to a nearby boat, the same boat you will see multiple times when you first start up the game. As Ellie places her things in the boat, she relives Joel's death one more time. She walks over to Abby and tells her she can't let her leave alive. Abby tells Ellie that she refuses to fight, and so Ellie threatens to kill Lev if Abby doesn't fight. What ensues is one of the most emotional fights. As someone playing the game, someone who is no longer invested in Ellie's motivations, and basically seeing Abby almost receiving karma at the hands of the Rattlers for all that she's done, you just feel drained. The entire fight is so hard to deal with. Ellie stabs Abby a few times with her mother's knife, ultimately losing it in the water during the scuffle. Abby bites off two of Ellie's fingers before Ellie gains the upper hand and starts drowning Abby in the ocean. Just as Abby's about to die, Ellie has one last flashback of Joel, but it's a memory of a content Joel just sitting outside playing his guitar on his deck. She lets Abby get up and tells her to leave with Lev. Ellie eventually makes her way back to the farmhouse and finds it completely empty, except for a few of her things and the stuff she kept of Joel's. She picks up Joel's guitar and tries to play the song that he taught her, but she can no longer play it without her fingers. The final scene that plays out is one I can't even begin to describe even if I tried. It's so heartbreaking and beautiful all at the same time. Simply, Ellie thinks about the flashback of Joel she had as she held Abby underwater. In this flashback, she visits Joel shortly after the fight at the dance where he stuck up for Ellie and Dina, and the two share a heart-to-heart. Ellie tells Joel that she'll never forgive Joel for what he did in Salt Lake City, but she wants to, and she'll try to. Showing that... Their relationship didn't end on bad terms, but that also Abby robbed them from fixing it. Back in the farmhouse, Ellie puts down Joel's guitar and leaves everything behind. As the last shot of the game mirrors the first shot of the game, a close-up of Joel's guitar. The ending of The Last of Us 2 is brutally unfulfilling, and that's the point. You are supposed to feel the loss, just as Ellie has felt the loss of Joel, the loss of Dina and their child, the loss of Jesse, the loss of the only connection to her mom, the loss of the community of Jackson, and her only connection left to Joel, the ability to play his guitar. And to mirror all of that, we go through all of the loss Abby has experienced. Naughty Dog is making sure that by the end of this game, You will feel as if you lost as well. Because Ellie never gets her revenge. But she learns that in order to move on, she needs to leave everything that's happened behind. It's the only way to regain her humanity. And you know what? As traumatic as it is, as unfulfilling as it is, I love this ending. It's absolutely heartbreaking but it's so much more interesting than the first game. For the most part, the ending of the first game is a happy ending in terms of where our characters ultimately end up. In The Last of Us Part Two, things are much more complex. I'm bored at the thought of what Naughty Dog might have put out if they just put out a similar game to the first that just kind of follows around Joel and Ellie again. I'm so happy that they decided to take the risk they did, There's so much more to chew on here. There's so much more to analyze. It's more thought-provoking and leaves you with so many questions. It's this kind of deeper storytelling that I look for when I come to a video game or watch a movie, not to say that I don't enjoy the occasional, you know, mindless blockbuster from time to time, but this kind of storytelling is rich and fulfilling. Maybe not, maybe fulfilling isn't the right word right now, but it's, worth it to experience. So, let's talk about the stuff nobody actually talks about when it comes to this franchise. Let's talk about the gameplay. If you're familiar with the first game, you'll feel right at home with The Last of Us Part Two. All the mechanics are, by and large, the same as the first, but with some minor tweaks that make it much more enjoyable to play. A large chunk of the game is exploring the ruins of Seattle, picking up items, unlocking safes, all in the name of crafting molotovs, smoke bombs, arrows, med kits, and then of course unlocking upgrades for your weapons. Just like in the first game where you could find comic book collectibles for Ellie, You may want to go out of your way to now collect trading cards, or if you're playing Abby's campaign, scrounge for quarters. All of her characters control just like they did in the first game. You can sneak around or run at a full clip, crouch, jump, and now you can even lay prone to the ground to hide beneath tall grass or crawl underneath cars. Your typical stealth vision is still here, allowing you to see enemy placement behind walls or around corners. The two biggest advancements from the first game is having a constant shiv on hand for sneak attacks and the ability to easily go from stealth mode, rushing into a battle, and then falling back into stealth. Now in the first game, sneaking up on enemies and stabbing them in the neck came at a cost. You would just tear through shivs and more often than not had to constantly craft new ones if you wanted to sneak around the game unnoticed. It's almost like Naughty Dog played Breath of the Wild and was like, Oh, wow, your weapons breaking kind of sucks. Like, that's, that's not a good game mechanic. Victory. Here in Part 2, Ellie has her mother's pocket knife, so there's no need to craft shivs, while Abby is more than capable of breaking a hostile NPC's neck. This is big. This is big. This changes the entire gameplay, because in the first game, If you were to run out of items to craft your shivs, sneaking around can get a little tricky. And having to go into a full-on gunfight wasn't the best way to play the first game either. Combat was a little clunky in the first game, especially when it came to the firefights. Not to mention, if you try to go back into hiding, more often than not, you will be followed by the game's clunky AI. Also, I just want to quickly mention that the hand-to-hand or CQC stuff... Is so much better in this game it's it's so much deeper the ai in the last of us part 2 is so much smarter but also a little dumber (laughs) you know if you're sneaking around and you end up getting caught you can ring out a few gunshots and take some enemies out run a few yards and go into hiding once again it all works so smoothly now there are like these videos out there on, on youtube of like people doing a chain of you know coming out of cover jumping over obstacles, taking multiple enemies out and then sliding under a bed, all the while the enemies are still trying to figure out just who the hell attacked them. The controls are so much more fluid in this game than in the first. My only complaint is that the gameplay loop of searching for materials, getting into battles, crafting and then searching again, gets just as repetitive as it did in the first game. Only this time, it's a little bit worse. Your first day in Seattle, The game becomes a pseudo-open world, which is fantastic. Any building you see, you can go into and explore. And if you're anything like me, games like this make me want to look around in every drawer and closet I come across. Even if I do say to myself, like, I'm going to skip this building, this is taking too long, I still end up going inside the damn building and looking around. After this area, the game becomes more linear like we're used to, but... Because of the large set pieces, and you combine that with the massive length of this game, you will certainly get tired of looking around. And I don't know, maybe play this on a higher difficulty, because playing it on normal, I never ran out of ammo. I never ran out of med kits. All but one of my weapons were completely upgraded. You really won't have to worry about anything surprising you in the game. Now, I already mentioned at the top of the show, but this game looks absolutely stunning. It is pushing the hardware inside the PS4 to the brink. I cannot overstate how beautiful this fucking game looks. There's nothing this generation that even comes close. It is simply the best looking game of the entire console generation. Period. There are so many different set pieces in this game. Sure, you have what you would expect to find in a post-apocalyptic game like this walking around the city you know you see long abandoned crumbling dilapidated buildings waist-high grass growing out of the middle of the streets but then you know in the beginning of the game you're traversing a mountain in the middle of the winter even though you don't spend too much time in jackson the detail within the town itself is stupidly remarkable the way the sunlight bleeds through the boarded up windows and how it reflects off the spores as you traverse the old hotel with Joel and Ellie. One moment, you're on top of some scaffolding above Seattle, and then the next, it looks like Silent Hill took a huge shit in the middle of an office complex, and you've got like these infected who are crusted into the wall, and the fungus is just running from the floor all the way up to the ceiling. And then at the end of the game, you have the huge set piece of the WLF raiding the island that the Seraphites are on. And all of this goes in tandem with the mocap and the facial animations. The attention to detail as Joel or Ellie runs their fingers across the strings of the guitar, how miraculously smooth the combat looks if you get into an altercation, and how the NPCs react depending on how or where you hit them. But the one thing that constantly made my jaw drop was the subtle facial animations. I have never seen a game tackle expressions quite like The Last of Us Part Two has. It's so subtle that it seems real. I don't know if I can even describe how fucking striking this looks. This alone is what made me feel like I was playing a PS5 game on a PS4. This is the future of graphics. Yeah, it's not a huge jump from 8-bit graphics to 16 or 16 to 32, but it's enough. And every time there was a cut scene, which there are many, I was just overwhelmed by how well animated the faces were. And so now we climb up the ladder one more wrong, and all of this works with the voice acting and sound design as well. You combine the phenomenal acting of Ashley Johnson and Laura Bailey with these amazing animations, and you feel their pain the trauma and delight coming out of these characters as if they were like real people. I often forgot I was even playing a game. This was the first game I played through all the way with some like really nice headphones on and let me fucking tell you, man, this game is a masterclass in sound design. I honestly thought nothing would be better than the Resident Evil 2 remake, but somehow it has been topped. Even if you're not using your stealth vision, you can hear enemies depending on their location. The echo of the clickers as they stumble through an open empty room and their hard footsteps pound on the floor, to the subtle drips and creaks of the surrounding buildings. There's a new type of enemy that stalks you and cannot be seen using the stealth vision, so you have to rely on their footsteps. These encounters are some of the most tense and horrifying parts of the game you will have ellie i can't remember if it's ellie or abby but you will have them you know crouched in a corner behind a shelf kind of trying to look over the corner looking for any movement within the pitch blackness of the room and suddenly to your left you start hearing footsteps and they're and they're getting loud very quickly they're getting louder and louder and louder and you turn only to be overrun by one of these enemies, maybe two. And then lastly, we have the soundtrack, and I um I sort of short shrifted Gustavo Santalaia on my music episode. And even worse, I think I butchered his name. So I, I don't know. I'm a fucking gringo. What do you want? But I am so glad that I have the opportunity to put a lot of his stuff in this episode because it is so important to the presentation of the game. Some of the most tense or heartbreaking scenes are made even more impactful, to the point of tears sometimes, when Santa cinematic score slowly floats into the background, often dissonant but incredibly strong, and even in the fiercest battles, or in the quietest shadows, there's always some sort of experimental drone overlapping the action of the game. It's absolutely gorgeous, and completely soul-crushing at the same time. I feel like I could talk about this game for another hour or so, and I don't even think I've covered it. I I don't know if I've even said everything that I wanted to say about this game. The Last of Us Part Two is a beast for many reasons, and honestly it has been very hard to talk about. So I think at this point it is time to wrap it up. Last of Us Part Two is markedly better than the first, in every aspect, from the story, to the gameplay, to the graphics and voice acting and the outstanding soundtrack. The mechanics of the game are much more fluid than in the first, the stealth in this game is better than even the best Metal Gear game, and the action is brutally gruesome. It's fucking horrible. Landing a headshot on someone with the bow has this nasty, just clean impact, while gunning down someone with the shotgun feels like and sounds like you broke open their chest cavity. The amount of different upgrades and craftable items are fun to play with, and messing around with the AI and setting up traps never gets old. Again, this game looks amazing. Nothing this generation touches it. Nothing. And combined with the music and acting, it just creates one of the best, most atmospheric cinematic experiences you'll ever have with a game. Period. With that said, the game is a little long, and it does suffer from its pacing issues. The first six or seven hours builds up to this huge crescendo With a showdown we we cannot wait to have at the theater between Ellie and Abby. But the tense pressure that has built up is immediately deflated when we start playing Abby's side of the story. And then this happens once again after we rejoin Ellie and Abby in the theater and then we get to the farmhouse. And then from then on, we, we still have five or six more hours to go until you hit the end of the game. As for characters, I think Lev's story is a little too fleshed out. And in my opinion it's a little unnecessary i feel like we didn't really have to go through his whole encounter with his mother and as a, a character you know lev has already been through hell having to kill his mother just kind of seems like naughty dog is piling up the drama in a game that's already stuffed with tragedy it really doesn't add anything to his or abby's arc and you know i think I think Abby's arc, Abby's whole side of the story, you know, should be tightened up a little bit. But at the same time, like I don't know, would would we lose some of her characterization? I don't I don't really know. Um and you know, since we're talking about Abby's arc, there are a lot of characters who are very throwaway. There's a lot of characters that die on her side of the story, members of the WLF. And they just don't have enough screen time. I don't know if their deaths are supposed to be impactful. But I kind of just didn't fucking care. I didn't even mention Manny in the story. But Manny is Abby's best friend. And he dies in a similar way that Jesse dies in Ellie's side of the story. And I just was like, alright, see ya, bitch. Bye. And as soon as Ellie leaves for Santa Barbara, I just... At that point, I just didn't really care. And I wanted to get to the end of the game. And again... You know, maybe that's all intentional on Naughty Dog's part. Perhaps Naughty Dog wanted to make the player feel like Ellie's story is futile because she continually makes horrible choices. Choices that we know as a player are unhealthy. And so the last couple hours of the game, I went from being a stealthy assassin, meticulously setting up traps and slitting throats, to kicking down doors and... Blasting anyone or anything that got in my way like an unstoppable teenage Terminator those last couple hours of the game, including the dogs, all those poor dogs I killed. I'm so, so sorry. I did not want to kill the dogs, but you kind of have to kill the dogs. It really fucking sucks. But even with the peaks and valleys of the story, I think Naughty Dog really hits and hammers home their message. The Last of Us Part 2 is a beautiful look into the complex human condition. It is horrific, traumatic, insightful, stunning, and heartbreaking. If you loved The Last of Us, there is no reason to avoid Part 2. It is that first game, but much better. There is no doubt That this is going to be my game of the year. And I haven't even talked about... I haven't even talked about New Game Plus. There's so much still to talk about. There's so much to this game. If for whatever reason you're avoiding this game, don't. You are doing yourself a disservice. You are making a huge mistake. You need to play this game. But... But... (laughs) Even still, objectively, I have to give this a light recommend just because of its horrible timing upon release. It is not a game for the lighthearted. The realness of the characters, the way they sound as they suffer, as they die, as they're killed, it's just, it is brutal. And with the hopelessness of the story... And how it ends on a bad note, it is just rough. It is a really difficult game to play. So, how can you talk to me? How can you contact me? You can email me at mainquestpod at gmail.com. I'm open to any questions, comments, or anything. I might even talk about a game if you throw one at me to talk about. I am the main quest on Instagram. You can check out the Instagram. I post the schedule up on there. I post when you can send me messages about upcoming shows and uh, I can read your reviews and and give you a shout out during, during the recording of the episode. And I just post like random dumb gaming adjacent shit on there as well. So give us a follow on Instagram. And so with that, that's, that's it. That is the last of us part two. That is the side quest episode for this month. Next month's PsyQuest episode, I will be talking about Resident Evil's predecessor, well, one of its predecessors, Sweet Home. So until then, thank you guys so much for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week. It's almost the weekend, and I will talk to you on Monday.